Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Stays Here podcast, sometimes known as Culture Crisis Conversations. We're here today at the record company at 960 Mass Ave in Roxbury or Dorchester or depending what you think. Um, We're here with um, members of the steering committee of Humphreys Street Studios. Uh, Humphreys Street Studios is now majority artist-owned and operated as affordable artist workspaces in perpetuity. Um, Why don't we each um, introduce ourselves, kind of say what kind of art or business we practice, how long we've been in Humphrey Street, and where you live. Uh, Okay. Hey, Amy. Um, I am Josh Rosewood. Um, I'm an architect. I have my studio at uh, Humphrey Street, and I've been there since nine or nineteen twelve, two thousand twelve. It's been a long freaking time. Um, uh, I'm a lifelong Boston resident, and I've lived in Roxbury since nineteen ninety eight. Great, nice thank name. you. Welcome. Uh, hi, everybody. Hi, hi. Amy. Hi. Uh, my name is Franklin Marwell, and I'm a graphic artist. I paint hard for a living. And and I make signs, and I've been in Humphrey Street Studio for since 2010, and I live in Framingham. Great, and I also like to say you are an educator. Correct. You are a commun an artist in the community. You are a public artist. You're a muralist. You are many things. He's blushing. Okay, <laughs> Christina. Hi, my name is Christina Tedesco. I'm a set designer and I work in theater and film. I have been at Humphrey Street Studios since 2004. And I um, have been in two different locations at Humphrey Street. So I started out in the basement and now I'm on the second floor. I lived in Dorchester for 25 years. And I just two days ago moved to Quincy, Mass., Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Ironically, side note, we've been talking about what not being a Boston resident, the identity of that and the loss, which we don't have to really talk about, but I just think it's a thing. Yeah, it definitely is a thing. Um, Not being part of the election process in a city that I've worked in my entire life is um, odd. And the uh, government relation to government uh, regarding our journey at Humphrey Street mm. is so significant and so much a part of everything that we do with the coalition that not being a Boston resident now is right. kind of interesting. Yeah. I'll have to make my way yeah. through that. It's too fresh. Um, in the future. Yes. My name is Amy Bennett. I am a longtime arts administrator, uh, publicist, 
fundraiser, etc. I used to manage bands in my previous career. I live in Dorchester. I'm a volunteer consultant to the artists at Humphrey Street Studio, and from that um, became a founding volunteer member of the Art Stays Here Coalition. And uh, why don't we first talk about what Humphrey Street Studios is, where it is, what it is, the campus, etc. And why, why doesn't our architect describe <laughs> okay. that? Uh, so Humphrey Street is um, a series of industrial buildings near Upham's Corner, sort of between Upham's Corner and South Bay in Dorchester. Um, it was originally a commercial laundry building um, that ran the Dallas, uh, was it Dallas? Dry Dallas cleaning? Cleaners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dallas Cleaners um, for a hundred and whatever years. Um, they were a commercial dry cleaner. Commercial dry cleaner that did uh, everything from rugs to wedding dresses to the hoi polloi of Boston's mm-hmm. cleaning services. And they actually lived in the building at one point, too, the upper floors of one of the buildings was their apartments. Um, so the building consists of a sort of hodgepodge of different buildings put together, a building on the street, a big mill building connected to that, and then a series of larger buildings connected in the back that had big, tall, huge spaces for doing rugs and cleaning and stuff like that. So. I remember when I was uh, researching some of the history of the Dulos family and the cleaners that um, they also did cleaning for like museum rugs, mm. like art rugs and things like that. And that was in the 1800s. Yeah, 1899 they started. Um, That building's been there. And also Frank Crichone, who used to be a woodworker, furniture maker at Humphrey Street and was kind of the beginning of this process, uh, he would refer to Humphrey Street as a campus. Campus. Mm. Mm -hmm. And meaning it's not one building. it's, It's a handful of buildings that are all connected and part of like... A little campus. Mm-hmm. Campus and hodgepodge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we have a bunch of outdoor common spaces, too, which is yeah. kind of rare to have, which so, makes it a campus as well. So there's a big courtyard between a couple of the buildings, and then there's a driveway that with sort of public space. And then one of the other unique things about it is that in the back, it's sort of a double-sized lot, and there's a big empty lot in the back also that was also part of the property that they bought that used to have housing that was torn down decades and decades ago. So um, Upham's Corner is a neighborhood of Dorchester. It's kind of between Columbia Avenue and Dudley Street. There's lots of different cultural things. The Strand Theater is there. The new Comfort Kitchen restaurant is there. Um, Fairmount Innovation Lab has been there. Um, DS4SI, DSNI, Dorchester Bay Economic Development Corporation. Lots of different kinds of cultural smatterings. It's even been referred to as the Arts and Innovation District by the city of Boston. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Christina, why don't you talk about Joe and Neil, our founders? Right. So Joe Wheelwright and Neil Wydette were the founding artists of Humphrey Street Studios. So they were two of four owners. Um, And Joe was an amazing sculptor, did a lot of um, public art that involved wood and stone and very sort of large scale pieces. He actually has a sculpture in Ashmont, outside of Ashmont Station in Peabody Square in Dorchester. What is that sculpture? It is a moon um, and it's 
uh, bronze. It's a beautiful sort of half moon on its side, and it's very large, and it's also down the street from where he lived. Um, so it, it's it's a very um, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful piece that. And he's renowned as a yes. as a sculptor. Yes, right. So he's yeah. also founder of Boston Sculptors Gallery. Yep. yep. And founder of Boston Sculptors Gallery, founded Humphrey Street Studios, and also had classes at his studio. He he had the largest studio on the campus. Um, very tall ceilings. There was a gantry in his space that he would move some of the large, heavy items with. So it was always fun going to visit him. Um, he also had a small gallery in his space that he exhibited some of his pieces in. And he also had like a chessboard that felt mm. like he was in the middle of a game with someone. At any point, you would go in and see a game that was half done. How did you come upon Humphrey Street? I'd been to a party, actually, at Humphrey Street. A friend of mine who was a lighting designer was dating a um, visual artist, and she had a space in the basement. And a bunch of us went to a party she invited us to, and it was a great property. It was so festive. There were lots of people there. Studios were open. And I thought when I got my master's degree in scene design, I thought, I need a space to set up. I cannot, I don't have room in my house, so I need a space. It needs to be affordable. So I just stopped by one day. I literally drove up the driveway, saw Neil, introduced myself, and he said, well, we don't really have anything, but let me bring you down in the basement. There's a kind of a storage area that you could create something in. So I went down, it was like a dirty floor, um, foundation, stone, dirty. There were a bunch of things that were being stored down there. But he said, you can do anything you want in here. And I, I was amazed by that, because I thought, okay, I'll paint it, I'll, I'll clean it up. And he said, you know, you could even you could make theater flats down here, which are theater walls. He didn't realize that I'm a designer. I'm not the builder. I, but, but I thought, wow, he's really game for anything. Can you share who Neil is? So, yes. Yeah, so Neil Wydette, um, he was a lovely man. Um, and he had, well, founder, but he also had a large woodworking shop on the first floor. And he would create his signs that were historic signs. So in a lot of the neighborhoods, more historic neighborhoods in Boston, where there are regulations around um, the aesthetic, like Beacon Hill, he would make signs for those stores, which were like on Charles Street. On Charles yeah. Street, yeah, he, they were all hand-carved, hand wooden carved. signs and mm -hmm. unique to each store. So they yeah. were like the classic, one of a kind, one of a kind, like that you see in like Europe and places where you have the the drugstore with the little mortar and pestle or whatever, yes. he would carve anything for that was unique to that business. And mm -hmm. I think at one point he did had like half the stores on uh, on Charles Street. I believe uh, it. So he was pretty amazing. And he guy. did the Old Globe Bookstore. He did mm -hmm. other other shops around Boston too, where anyone needed something that felt um, felt handmade, felt old Boston, felt colonial in a way, um, and not using 
anything computer generated, nothing to do with a CNC router, which is, you know, having a computer basically tell the the um, blade the blade to do the work. He would take a chisel and he would he would create all the text in by hand. Um, and his wife, JJ, would do the gilding and the painting. And she was incredibly talented. How well. do you, do we know how Neil and Joe knew each other? They were friends from way back. And they had, uh, uh, I think they were part of the whole, like, art scene in Boston when Newberry Street was like an artist hangout. Um, uh, and then they had a studio space in the South End for years. Um, uh and got to know each other, were friends, and then when they decided the South End was getting too fancy or too, they needed more space, I can't remember exactly why they moved, but then they started looking for a new space, found Humphrey Street, and worked with the city. They got a lot of money from the city to help buy it and do the restoration, but then it was all sweat equity. I mean, just like Christina said, it was people come in and do their own work, um, and people from that time, a lot of them stayed on. Right. And all of you... Of knew Joe and Neil. Yes. Yes. So we should also now say that how this story happens and unfolds is basically because both Joe and Neil, who were the founding artists and owners, passed away. Yes. Yeah. Uh, So originally, um, there was a four-person ownership group. It was Joe Wheelwright, Neil Wadette, Jim Cooper, and And Peter Peter Haynes. Peter Haynes, Haynes, also a a sculptor. An artist. Is an artist. So uh, Peter is still alive in, in Cambridge. Jim Cooper is still alive. Um, he is a real estate attorney, uh, not an artist. And with um, Joe and Neil passing away, uh, Jim Cooper kind of took over the administration management of the studios. So as tenants, when those folks passed away, did you think we're going to get displaced? Did you think like what's going to happen? What are the widows going to you know, what, what, and, and not just what did you think, but also what was any of the communication? So what's interesting is the culture at Humphrey Street, while Neil and Joe were alive and there every day, was really relaxed in that, you know, we weren't, we, we, we didn't collect as a community in a way. We didn't come together. Um, he, they were really good at fixing things when things sort of broke. Um, You know, they were there. You could talk to them. Mm. They sort of settled things right away with you. Or, Or not, but you had a conversation with them because they were there every day. So when they weren't there every day because, you know, they were sick and then eventually passing, it really felt strange. It felt a little unmoored. Um... And a lot of the tenants didn't know each other because we all went to Joe or Neil. So there wasn't a big need for us to collect or come together as a community before they passed away. So the the property eventually um, was put on the market by the surviving owners um, and the their widows, Joe and Neil's. And were you given... Well, we, we didn't hear anything for a while, actually. Before, when Joe and Neil passed, it was just sad because we were they were friends and they were a part of this community. Um, uh, and I had known Neil since I was a kid. I grew up in the South End and he hung out at the same diner we went to every day. Um, 
but then when they died, it was sort of like status quo. Nothing's really going on. Mm. We don't know what's going on. Is something going to change? And then it sort of, there was this sort of weird limbo for a while that we just didn't hear anything. Um, and we sort of hoped it would continue. But there was this sort of creeping fear like, oh, they're, they're gone. This is going to disappear too. Um, and Peter was not on site. As, no, as Peter an owner. was a silent. Okay. Peter and Jim Cooper were okay. the silent partners, and Joe and Neil were the managing partners because they were there. Okay. And then Frank Crichone, former tenant, and Mark Barkas, this is my understanding, started to get together and figure things out? or mm-hmm. we, we all started to talk. I mean, we were all concerned. And Frank said we should get people together, and we organized a couple of meetings in Mark's space. And there was this sort of, I don't know, it felt at the time like this fate accomplished. We're, this is, okay, we're going to put together an effort, we're going to make a stink, and then we're going to lose the lose uh, the studio space. So um, when you were first getting together at that time, what what was it like? What was it? We need to save it. Can we buy it? What's going to happen? Can we go somewhere mm-hmm. else? Like what? What did we know, really? And what and who all was there? Uh, who was there? Or were there a lot of people there? <laughs> yeah, there were a lot yes, of people. That, was, yeah. that was the first time that more people got together. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than 25 people so sitting yes. around the table. When in yes. crisis, people get together. Oh, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I remember before that, somebody was interested in the building, on buying the building. When, and then we, were, we got noticed that somebody's interested in buying the building. I remember the first time before that meeting. And I remember I was in the basement and right across the, the hallway from Joshua. And we always, we were talking about it. And we were like, I was freeze and froze for three months. Mm. Frozen. Like, you were frozen for three months. Yes. Yes. With thinking on in where fear? are we going to go? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's 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 a feeling that that yeah. consumes you, right? Yeah. yeah. And then and then I was like, okay, I need to wake up. I need to keep doing things. And then that meeting came, mm. and I was like, okay, I'm gonna look at it in a different way. I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna go. I'm gonna be part of it. Mm-hmm. And but but uh, but I something on my head. I went like, I need to work on this i'm gonna i need to be part of this but at the same time i need to keep working because if i don't do it i mean mm-hmm. you do the math and that's the thing about our our space is that we are creative small businesses and artists so there are jobs people are doing um while you're having to deal with the question of whether you're going to lose your space or not you've got customers you have clients you have work to do, so it's a. It was a huge and scary thing yeah. um, to think that your business will be homeless. Mm-hmm. And that and that is what's sort of unique about the studios as well too. That it was it wasn't just fine artists, painters, and what they call paint slingers, um, <laughs> uh, and fine artists and sculptors. I mean, it was a nice mix of that. But there are also a lot of creative businesses. I mean, like I'm architect mm-hmm. and graphic design, and I mean three right here. Um, and so it was this mix of fine artists and artisans and works workers um, that that Joe and Neil had tried to develop. Uh, that was really important mm-hmm. to them. Neil was more the artisan worker and Joe was more the fine artist. Uh, and that that mix was unusual in a lot of places and really nice mm-hmm. at, at Humphrey Street. But 
but that we weren't that together until this happened. I mean, but, Franklin and I remember we tried open door policy. We were just going to always leave our door open, and then the basement would immediately become this big communal place. Yeah, but, I remember we called it one time the ground the ground up gallery. Oh, that's right. Yeah. During open studios. Yeah. But at the same time, I know during that meeting we got together for the like the first time everybody on the same room. But but at the same time we were collaborating each other too. Mm -hmm. You know we have in the building f uh, framers. Uh, we have somebody that worked with the, with iron, and we always were mm -hmm. collaborating with right you know, silk screen, silk screen. Um, yeah. Woodworkers, Clothing, furniture wood makers, designers, apparel designers, yeah. stone yeah. sculptors, jewelry makers, textile artists, paper artists, photographers. Yeah. So many artists, so many people. Let's uh, take a minute and talk about some of the artist tenants in our community and how what I always say is like from age 20 to age 80, yeah. um, meaning all kinds of ages, um, we talk about organic, real diversity we have you know lots of people that are immigrants um first people uh in america in their generation from venezuela yeah that's my case <laughs> argentina haiti mm -hmm. um cape verde cape verde france france russia oh russia, yes mm. Although some of that, there was that there too, but some of that developed, I think, a little bit, it got even more so after Joe and Neil died. I mean, it seemed like there was a little bit more of the classic artist mm -hmm. culture there. Probably uh, because they came they from, came from. From, the, yeah. from Joe and Neil. Yeah. And then when Boris, was, who was one of their managers and uh, part of the community, started managing all the new tenants, mm -hmm. I think it really did diversify after that as well, too. So there and were younger. a lot of Cape Verdean, people from the neighborhood, people from all over that. So the one of the things I know other people in the neighborhood about Humphrey Street that was its reputation before all this was it was the place with the big closed gate. And they'd close the gate at night because they're worried about crime and other things. But it was also closed off from the neighborhood um, uh, as the stuff that happens back there that isn't really as much part of the community, I think. Well, let's also share with folks who don't know that um, that particular area of Upham's Corner is entirely residential, mm. except that corner where Humphreys meets East Cottage. And then you have Humphrey Street Studios, then you have Diamond Windows, and then some more industrial stuff on East Cottage, mm. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so it's really a residential neighborhood. Mm. There's actually mm. two um, neighborhood associations that uh, abut each side. And so what you mean is that the gate, which would block the driveway so you couldn't really come in onto the Humphrey Street campus. Right, yeah. Right, and that used to be closed every day at, yeah. you know, five well, it's the sign says to close it at five o'clock, yeah. but oftentimes it was later than that mm -hmm. when the last person left. And we could give you some of the colorful history, too, of the, well, the basement particularly. Uh, sure. All these parties that Christina was going to over here. Um, uh, in where my studio is now was this big open space. Um, uh, and then when I came in, I worked with Joe and Neil to divide it a little bit more. But it had basically been a nightclub at one point. Um, where all kinds of crazy stuff was going on. There were little private rooms that you could rent. By the hour, I think. Um, that uh, was not happening at the party that well, I attended. I didn't mean to play. FYI. <laughs> but, and then they had a lot of trouble getting that 
individual out. Um, uh, so it, it was a colorful place as well, too. There was a lot of unusual things going on. But um, And I have to say that I know you mentioned that it was closed, mm -hmm. but if you look, everybody that were on that building were connected with the neighborhood. In my case, I, 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 I was working on Boston Day Anything Academy, mm -hmm. and it's like around the corner. Mm -hmm. And so if you look behind every person there, there is a connection to the neighborhood, you know. Now. No. Well, before. We and Nora. Yes. Mm -hmm. Nora. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, no, I mean, if we go through everybody, you're going to see the connection, but no in the way that is now, of course. Yeah. Now everybody got together. I, I mean, this is a different And story. that all came from us coming together when we were all in a crisis yeah. yes um culture and, crisis yes yes and there's nothing that brings people together um like a, cul a culture crisis yeah. so then let's go back um to that meeting um frank mark what was said what came out of it and then how did we get to the point where you called me yeah so that meeting took place in mark's studio i remember and what did come up was that um jim cooper had given us all the idea that potentially there was a chance we could get together and buy the building ourselves that was the the sort of seed that got us all thinking about working together. Um, Jim had brought it up. Uh, he had also connected with Bill Hardy. That wasn't the first meeting, though. The first meeting was we, I think Jim said you guys should think about it, and we all had, because the second, the second meeting was the Bill Hardy meeting. But um, right. So we all got together. We talked about what the possibilities were, and it was right. just people throwing ideas out, like, yeah. "Oh my God, we're going to get kicked out." So did Jim Can Cooper, as the like managing owner, did he say what the list price was going to be? Was it no. on the market no. or any of that? No. At that first meeting, I don't think there was any of that. Um, uh, it was that we knew it was on the market, uh, more that it was going to be sold. But I don't, I don't remember his involvement at that first meeting. I remember him contacting, being in contact with us. He wasn't. Um, sort of doing stuff behind our back, at least it didn't seem like. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but so we all got together and like, do we have a chance to save this? Like, what are the options? Can we get the city to help us? Can we come up with enough money and co-op the whole thing? And But we'll never come up with that money. Can we find someone else to help? Can we find a way to, to I don't know, rent to own or something? Can we, is there flexibility here to do something creative um, to make this, to make it work? Right, and also, where should we go? Yeah. If the building gets sold. Yeah. That, that was mm -hmm. one of the options, so. Yeah. I remember looking at, a, just driving around, oh, like, yeah. oh my God, could we go there? Oh yeah, my God, yeah. there's nothing here. That's uh, funny, because now when I drive around, how I look at everything mm -hmm. is always through the eyes of, is that buildable? Yeah. Is that saleable? Yeah. Is that, mm -hmm. can that be artist studios? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything, like, I can't not do that now. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so then I assume that Jim Cooper connected the artist with Bill Hardy. Is mm -hmm. that what yes. happened? Yeah. Okay, and Bill Hardy is... Um, co-owner of New Atlantic Development, uh, known as um, specializing in community projects, affordable housing, partnering with uh, CDCs, and uh, working on um, arts and artist-related projects. Um, he uh, he run his his firm runs um, Walter Baker Artist Lofts, which is in Lower Mills, Dorchester. Yeah. And the Bates School. Um, Which is in the South End. Yep, in the South End. 
And he worked with the Midway studio artists who have a huge success story um, with saving their building, with buying their building. And he was also involved with um, Brookside Avenue and JP, uh, which are artist live workspaces. So over time, he's done a lot of different things, uh, some uh, senior residencies. Yeah. Um, so he's he's a d- developer. We like to say a benevolent developer mm-hmm. um, who really likes to help people and work on community projects, sometimes in partnerships with other folks. And that's how Jim Cooper connected him mm-hmm. with you at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was but, a long yeah, time ago. It was a long time ago. And Bill ended up kind of thinking... It wasn't going to work um, at that point. So we all got very sad about that. And my immediate reaction was to seek out um, some advice from um, Cara Elliott Ortega, the chief of arts and culture. Um, So I, I just cold called her or cold emailed her and um, she was very receptive it just felt like we needed the city of Boston to help us in some way because we were completely unable to mm-hmm. buy the building. Our hands were tied. And we, um, you know, as, as artists in the city of Boston, um, we are uh, an asset. And I thought something has to be done. And that's when I also contacted Amy Bennett, who... I'd worked with in the theater world. She was um, a marketing director at a couple of theaters that I worked at, but I knew that she understood how to um, make noise, make noise. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that Kara had said to me about um, how she could help would be only through artists coming together and organizing and speaking in one voice. That was what she recommended first. And so that was when we motivated to come together really as a group, um, even though we had a couple meetings, but that advice meant we have to trust each other. We have to meet each other. We have to learn from each other and come together And really believe that, you know, artists make a difference in um, in a city everywhere in neighborhoods and that um, it's worth fighting to keep us here. And, you know, we all have to believe that. Um, Let's take a pause for a minute and um, explain to folks about the chemicals. Mm. I was just about to do that. Um, I mean, the yes. the reason when Bill Hardy and New Atlantic came in, we did a big walkthrough with them. We talked about the options about possibly, I mean, the, the building made money. So the, the, the tenants' rents, whilst really affordable, uh, were enough to support a mortgage. And that we thought maybe this seems perfect. And so Bill started to look into that for us and talk to a bunch of lenders and we had known that, that Jim Cooper had actually tried this before. He had tried to get a loan to prove that you could get a loan on it so someone would buy it. Um, and they couldn't, no one would give, would even come close to giving us or anyone else a loan on the property. Can you explain why? Because <laughs> of the uh, dry cleaning business that had been there. And the dry cleaning business had deposited a whole heck of a lot of chemicals into the ground, including a leaking oil tank and all the dry cleaning chemicals that were 
in the ground below the building. And the previous owners had done various studies. They had a, um, a licensed site, what do you call it, licensed site, LISC, um, licensed site professional, LSP, um, uh, create a plan for the for the project to deal with this level of toxins that were under the building um, and to mitigate them to 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 assess to assess them and to provide some ventilation um, uh, but it was minimal at that point um, uh, and because of these things there none of the funders would have anything to do with the project. Um, so we thought, oh my God, we're stuck. Like, there's no solution here um, until we started deciding we had to get more creative. So at that point, did you know that it was, um, I hate this term, but I'm going to say it, a dirty property? We didn't know fully. Some of us had a feeling, but it was never really said out loud. Um, so it was a slow process of, of learning. I think some people knew some things, but, you know, uh, we, we just sort of tried to follow along as best we could because it is a complicated thing to, you know, get these reports about mm. chemicals in the soil. Um, and we're artists. Exactly. We're, not, we're not scientists. Right. We, we didn't know what that means. You know? Yeah, we have the papers and the and the numbers, but right. we were like, okay, but we didn't know any of that when we moved in. Like in Correct. the basement, any of us. Right. I mean, you're digging in the dirt in the basement. Right. Franklin and I are in the basement. No one ever mentioned anything about any chemicals on the site to any of us. Yeah. So it was a surprise and scary. Mm -hmm. And then we were scared about that. Yeah, we were like, okay, what what, what all this means? So at the very beginning, Jim Cooper, part owner who is trying to sell the property because everyone, the, the owner group and the widows uh, wanted to sell. Jim Cooper connects you with Bill Hardy mm -hmm. as a potential way to, you know, could this become uh, artist owned? Is it a project he's interested in? How could it stay as artist studios? And Bill comes in, you guys do a walkthrough and an assessment and say, no one will lend because of the dirty property, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Okay. Then what? We contacted every, well, we got Amy involved. We mm -hmm. started meeting. So I was a marketing and PR um, arts consultant. And like Christina said, uh, we knew each other through theater. And I remember you called me and said, I didn't really understand artist studio community um, in that you, me, and Frank Hershon mm -hmm. were going to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And this was, this was the summer of the pandemic, yes? Yes. Yeah. Or like May. 2020. May. So... I was trying to understand, what are you asking of me? What are you talking about? What is your goal? And at that time, you were saying what, you know, Cara, Chief Elliot Ortega had advised you, which was for artists to get together, speak in one voice and make noise. So I think your partner, Mark Howard, mm -hmm. said, Amy's a publicist, mm -hmm. contact her. Right. So you were coming to me for a PR campaign. And I remember Frank Rochon and he had already drafted a press release and, you know, I had a million questions and what do you mean? What, you know, article in the globe. And, you know, he was, he was on fire, uh, Frank. And, um, yeah, I don't know if it was the first conversation we have. It was before Josh got involved or the second conversation you mean Frank had, but I remember saying to myself and to you, you don't just need a PR campaign, you need a preservation campaign. And suddenly, 
it went from this like transactional, oh, we're going to put out a press release and see if we can get an article and blah, blah, blah to like, hey, why don't we actually try to fight this? Mm-hmm. And so then that we started a steering committee. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so that was Frank, you, me, and then Josh. And I was here. Yeah, Is that? Right at the and, yeah. Mark and Mark Barkus. Barkus. And Mark Barkus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's take a moment and explain yeah. who Mark Barkus is. So Mark Barkus was a carpenter. He actually had moved into Neil's studio, um, shared it with him, and then eventually took it over when Neil passed away. But Mark was an incredible carpenter, um, and he did a lot of restoration, beautiful restoration work on houses, but could make furniture, was a really, really talented carpenter, um, and an avid golfer. <laughs> oh, I, I would see that. his golf clubs in his car all the time. But he, um, y- you know, this was his workplace. This was his business. Had he and, had Mark been there for as long as you? No, Mark came. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, Let me say when I got there. So okay, so <clears throat> 2010, maybe yeah. or nine. Yeah, he was there at that time. Yeah. Mm. Um. So, yeah, and he had worked next to Neil. I mean, both of them had their different, you know, companies, but they shared um, they shared a space together. It was a huge space and could accommodate that. And, and they shared woodworking tools and yeah. table saws and other stuff. And right. And just... He was a wonderful curmudgeon. Uh, yes. He'd sit up there smoking cigarettes and yes. ah, complaining about this, and but he was like a good-hearted, sweet guy. Yeah. Um, he ended up passing away in um 2021 during this process yeah. during this process of cancer um but he really he went to as many meetings as he could for as long as he could yeah. which was pretty incredible mm-hmm. and kept fighting and this was during covid too mm-hmm. so we were just learning how to do zoom and mm-hmm. i remember mm-hmm. mark's uh just the background on the zooms were hilarious because yeah. you know some space background and his <laughs> head would be sort of coming in and out yeah. of it which was appropriate um but so we were meeting on zoom and eventually it was every week and those meetings to me like saved me like that was like the highlight of like my life at that point. I mean, here we are stuck in the house. I'm, I have two kids at home. I'm trying to teach them and my wife's at home and I'm, we're like trying to make things work. Um, and like, then we had this like hopeful, crazy, creative meeting every week. And it was, it was amazing. It was really, it made me really happy. So let's uh, give a picture of that. So we have uh, me as a volunteer consultant. We decide we need a preservation campaign with a PR campaign. We have you, Christina, you, Josh, Frank. Frank Rishon hadn't left yet. He was in process of leaving. He was in process. Yeah, he was in the process of leaving. And then Mark left. And then we, then somehow, how did we get Franklin and Nora and Jem? How did that work? Actually, I think there was, between all of this, there was something that came in and there was a group that Jim Cooper had had under agreement to buy the building, CORE. Mm. Oh, CORE. CORE. Yes. So oh, CORE yes. is this big development group yep. doing a lot of stuff in Dorchester, South Boston. Um, uh, and they were going to come in. They had a couple meetings with us. Although the first time they showed up, the guy showed up in a Maserati, which made me a little nervous. And Frank <laughs> Crishone, former HSS tenant, was the contact to CORE. 
Yeah. Okay. He, he was our representative that would contact them. Which um, was, you know, pretty incredible. Jim, you know, passed that information along um, to Frank about CORE. So sort of, um, sort of ushered that relationship. But then at that point, too, I remember CORE had a meeting and we were all outside in the, in the driveway because COVID and you can't be inside. And I think you weren't there for some reason. So Nora, who's a sculptor, walks by and sees this group and it's all men. And she's like, what the bleep mm-hmm. is going on here? Am I allowed to swear on this mm-hmm. or no? Mm-hmm. What the fuck is going on here? It's a bunch of men. I want to be part of this. So we thought maybe since both Frank and um, uh, uh, Mark were not going to be in it, that we needed to expand the group. So um, uh, we asked Nora and Frank to be part of it. When Frank was leaving, he say he he talked to me and said, "Look, you should be part of this." Mm-hmm. And, and also, you took over I, his studio. Correct. So I remember Frank Crichon had a Google Drive of all these documents from Core from um, kind of historic documents about the building and the property and maybe something about the chemicals. He also showed me, I think, a draft of a lease that CORE had put forth. Um, And so the CORE situation, it was pretty, it was almost at PNS or it was almost... um, It was under agreement and they were working towards PNS so they were doing their due diligence and all that. Okay, so it was like, it was pretty... Yeah. Down the road. Yeah. And then it wasn't. Correct. What was that about? Core realized what they would have to do with the chemicals, I believe. And also, I think they realized that we were starting to get organized and we were not going to be easy. Um, at least it felt that way because mm-hmm. we were asking them a lot of questions, what they were going to do about this. Did they say they were going to redevelop it? Did what did they, they say? They didn't say. They said they didn't know what they were going to yeah. do. Um, but then they sent all these leases out and no one signed the lease as far as I know. Um, that first set of leases, I think we talked to someone and they said, don't sign anything. You called VLA. No, I think that was before Milo. Uh, yeah. No, you called VL volunteer, volunteer lawyer oh, for the arts. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then spoke to Luke Belkadar. Mm-hmm. So, side note, if I were a developer and I were buying that property, I would not keep it at its artist studios. Mm. I would mm-hmm. demolish it and build something else, right? And yeah. wouldn't you, wouldn't isn't that like meaning the buildings are not in great shape? Mm. Right. Um, it was kind of awkward and let's say ugly. Mm. Um, Charming. It has okay. Its charm. But like if you were but if you were a developer, you weren't buying it to keep it as artist studios. No. If you're a developer, you want to make money, right? That's the And typical also you don't want you don't want forty housing. leases. Yeah. Forty tenants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Right? Yeah. So we didn't know if they if they bought it, would they sit on it and keep us there? Land bank it. Land bank it or, and keep the rents as is. But we had a feeling even if they land banked it, they would have raised the rents, which would have been pretty devastating mm. for a lot of us if that happened. We wouldn't have been able to afford to be there. Okay. So um, then Frank Crichon leaves because he wanted a bigger space and he went to a place in Forest Hills, JP. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we have a steering committee with Josh, Christina, Franklin, Nora, and we brought in Jem, Jem Stephenson. Mm-hmm. And we started meeting every single week to kind of talk about what, what are things that we could do. And we put together, we started putting together a preservation plan. So I think one of the first things we started talking about was building a tenants association. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we also, I think before we even got to that, it was just contact everyone we conceivably can think of. Okay. So every organization and um, anyone, politicians, uh, mm-hmm. mayors of social culture, anyone who could conceivably have a creative way of looking at this. So right. I just remember making calls and sending emails and just seeing anyone would bite on it. Right. So let's talk about some of the people. So let's call that community outreach and mm-hmm. let's talk about some of the people that you contacted. Liz Miranda. Liz Miranda, who was amazing and wanted to help us. Um, who is she? Uh, Liz Miranda uh, was a uh, city councilor, uh, and she is now state, oh, separate state rep. Yep. And then, oh wait, was she city councilor? She's state rep, state senate now um, from Upham's Corner. Uh, amazing. She was also the youth leader of uh, DSNI. I think that was where she first got sort of activist started. She also was the, how I got to know her, she was the interim director of the Hawthorne Youth and Community Center in Roxbury, um, which was a building that I designed and helped them do a big renovation, uh, a big addition on. Um, and I, there was a lot of work to be done after she came on at sort of the end of that. But we got to be, I got to know her and we got to be friends. Um so contacted her. We contacted every other city councilor. Um, Frank, uh, Baker. Frank Baker. Frank Baker. And he uh, came and visited. Mm-hmm. We we invited so many people to come just so they could see what it was, what we were. A lot of people had no idea what we were and that we were there in that neighborhood. Even John Barrows, he was someone else we contacted yeah. when he was the... Um, uh, chief of Economic Development for the uh, with the Marty Walsh administration, we contacted. And he lives him. in the neighborhood too. He grew uh, up and in he the also ran DSNI. Yep. He ran DSNI, and one of the things he said to us on a call with him on a Zoom was that if he had known this place had existed uh, while he was growing up, he would never have. He, he may not have gone into politics. He may have become an artist mm-hmm. because he's a painter. And that really, I think, was kind of an incredible um, realization at how visibility, our visibility in the neighborhood could actually influence for the better the, the people in the neighborhood. And, you know, something we could be involved with. How do we become an asset? So all of that was always in our minds as we were reaching out um, to neighbors and organizations. How can we be an asset? How can we present and display that we are um, an asset? So well, then Frank, we, Franklin had just oh, that, Franklin yeah. had this amazing thing that like hit me at that point, and I, you're gonna have to put it in your own words, so because I can't remember, maybe you can't remember either. But <laughs> it was that we have this incredible talent in this building, like this incredible weird collective mix of, of collective talent. yeah. different talents, different skills, and like how do we offer that, like how to ourselves, to each other, to the community that it was. Yeah, in that moment we started dreaming. About the vision of this of this new thing mm-hmm. that, that that we discovered when we got together, and because it, it was the, the building is just amazing when you when you go into the building and start talking with the people behind the doors, you're gonna find a little bit of everything, you know, and and to put together something like this, it takes years. Yeah. It's not something that you can just say and say, okay, this is amount of money. Let's build something like this. No, you can't replicate it. No, no, no matter what, you just, it's because it is by um, happenstance that exactly. it all came together and, organically. And, and and something that we, so we started dreaming, right? And this vision of the things that we wanted to do. And then at some point, we were like, in one of those meetings, we were like, oh wait a minute, without space, 
none of these none of this is possible mm -hmm. so let's put a vision mm -hmm. <laughs> let's put a pin on that mm -hmm. <laughs> as amy say yeah <laughs> but that was uh, let's focus and, and get the, and get the space so, but that was the thing that gave it like motivation too it wasn't just saving our own little individual worlds it was like this potential like franklin's vision of like this beautiful thing that this is and that the we humans have to celebrate involved, the humans yeah. involved the connections, the unlikely um, grouping of 50 different types of people. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about some of those people. Why don't you tell me about Virginia? So um, Virginia Yazbek, she lives in uh, Dorchester. She lives around the Melville Ave area. And she is a former um, Boston Public School teacher, art teacher. And she has this great studio. It is chock full of um, her work, and she's got a variety of uh, different kinds of work. I think she used to want to be an architect. She has mm. old drawings of houses and other structures, but she is a paper maker. She is a sculptor, um, and she... Yeah, she's been there for probably around 12 or 13 years. Uh, she's a lovely, um, gregarious um, person full of joy about uh, and curiosity about the world. And she gets excited about um, the artists around her and their work, too. Josh, why don't you tell us about Andy? Well, let me just say one more thing about Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, so during all this, I'd see her in the hallway or we'd talk her. And again, it's COVID or this is pre-COVID it started and then COVID it got mm. a little more, a lot more complicated. But she said, well, if I lose this space, can you design me a new studio space at my house? She was going to expand her garage and make a studio space. Oh, I never heard so that So I lost a freaking commission. So <laughs> this whole thing sucks. But, um, uh, but um, so, yeah, she's just an amazing, wonderful, sweet person. Um, what about Andy? Andy, amazing, sweet, wonderful person, too, in a different uh, cut. Um, Andy is an ex-defense attorney. Um, criminal Andy defense, Good. Andy Good, ex-criminal defense attorney um, who represents all kinds of um, people who've been... Uh, Underserved. Uh, underserved although um just uh, accused of and not <laughs> accused of crimes of all levels um very good at what he does um just as an aside too neil was a lawyer too before he um went into art so he decided he didn't want anything to do with law and practiced for a few years and at his funeral there were all these lawyers there it was so weird but um, he and andy crime. went to law school together oh, that's right that's right um but so andy came in I think first as a student of Rogers, Roger was another blacksmith um, in the space before Andy was there, which was in the old space that JJ had had as a gilder. So what's nice also at these spaces turn over and new people do things. Um, uh, and Roger was a very well-known, really amazing sculptor, metal, metal sculptor, forger, um, not in the fake art way, but um, hmm. his stuff in the um, various uh, museums all around uh, New England. Um, Andy came in as a blacksmith sort of apprentice, and he wanted to learn. He liked working with metal and started making things and eventually took over Roger's space and shares it with uh, Elian, uh, who is a violin repairer sort of world-renowned violin repair she does for Boston Symphony Orchestra all the like 
famous violin people. But what she really likes to do is forge knives. So she makes these unbelievably gorgeous, beautiful, one-of-a-kind knives for, I guess, chefs and like yeah. the fancy... Very fancy. Uh, Cul culinary arts or cutlery? Uh, cu culinary, like special one-of-a-kind um, knife for, I don't know, chefs. Bobby Flay or mm -hmm. whoever the heck. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but beautiful. Um, and she's she Austrian or... She's French-Canadian. French-Canadian, same thing. Um, <laughs> okay. um, so they share a space in the, in the Blacks studio. And one of the other things that Joe and Neil always tried to do is have a mix of people in different studios. So it was happenstance, but it also was directed in that they wanted a metal shop. They wanted um, a wood shop. They wanted to have a variety of things, I think, in order to fix parts of the building. Well, too, the but, uh, spaces are so different mm -hmm. and that they are definitely, they serve certain um, practices better than, uh, some serve practices better than others. Mm -hmm. So it, it does welcome that uh, very diverse amount of um, artistic practices. Tell Just us about Joe Wardwell. So Joe is um, a painter. Uh, his space uh, is on the third floor and he has about three different studios up there on the third floor. He rents out. I mean, he, those are his spaces. So the reason why he has so many spaces up there is because he often does these large scale kind of, um, murals that get installed in place. He did um, the mural that is in the new, the sort of newly restored, renovated um, public Boston Public Library annex in um, Dudley? Nubian Square. Mm -hmm. So that is, uh, was something he worked on all summer. Maybe it was two summers ago, but it's a huge installation um, he also teaches at Brandeis. He teaches at Brandeis. He um, surfs. Uh, he often has a surfboard on the roof of his car. Um, but he is working. Uh, he's often working on very large pieces up in uh, up in his spaces, sort of um, hopscotching, uh, pull, you know, finishing finishing large scale piece, pieces, pulling them out, swapping. Um, uh, pieces as they're ready uh, and working. So on he them. shows at museums and galleries, and yep, he's he, had, you he know. has a piece at Mass Mocha, and he had mm -hmm. um, Dudley Library. He does a lot of mural work, and he does stuff in the community as well too. So it's a nice. Yeah. yeah. How about um, Yotron the Don? Yes. So Johan Quintero, aka Yotron the Don, he is an amazing artist, and. He was one of my students at Boston Day Anything Academy. Uh, amazing space, amazing uh, culture. And this is a high school that brings a lot of experience for the students. And uh, I was there as an art teacher, and bringing all, everything that I know about technology and how to print, how to cut, how to use plotter and all that, and how to make t-shirts and all that. And he's a brilliant. When I remember the first time that I met him, we have an, uh, we had a, uh, how you say, like a contest. So I brought, I mean, the idea, I, I brought like a little contest to everybody to be part of, uh, the young artists, to, I told them, I want you guys to design a haircut for me mm. in an artistic way. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you need to be creative. 
so 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 can the student the student engage right and i told him i'm gonna be your gallery for a week i'm gonna go to a barber shop and i'm gonna go i'm gonna cut whatever you guys create i mean <laughs> so it was a contest stars star, the staff and the teacher were voting on it so like around 50 or yeah, around 50 kids participating so i give them like like coloring pages of my my head front <laughs> side and back and and uh, <laughs> it was really really i need engaged. to put a pause on this for just one second i just want to say to all of you as friends and colleagues the fact that things are coming out here that none of us knew <laughs> having worked together so closely for so long is pretty awesome so <laughs> none of us knew about this haircut contest yes so okay. the, the reason that i'm saying this is like i mean i mean the students were connected and the staff and teacher both on it And I remember after everybody were participating, I I got to know Jotron and I say, you need to be part of this. This is the coloring page. I need you to design something. And he say, yeah, but I need to go. He was leaving the school. And I say, do it really quick. And he went like, you know what? Yes, let me try. And he sketched something so quick in less than three minutes. And he say, here you go. I was like, perfect. And I put it on the wall and he left. And everybody voted on it and he was the one that won the contest. <laughs> <laughs> so so I went to East Boston to get my haircut and there were flames coming from the back of my head to my side and my beard. And they were like swirls coming from the back. Amazing. Oh. Amazing. And this guy, the barber shop. Yes, I have a picture. Have, okay. Oh yeah, I got uh, I, I, got, I have a picture of everything. <laughs> so so I was like wearing this artwork, artwork from Jotaran for a week and a half. And every, everybody were like, I was so excited about this mm -hmm. that everybody that told me and talk about it, I was like, I, I need to share this story. And so we click. And since then, that was like... You adopted him. I, I would say vice versa. Oh, he adopted you. <laughs> yes, he mentioned that. I mean, he, he, he always say that I'm his mentor, but he's also my mentor. Mm -hmm. And we share so, so much. Hmm. And, and we learn so much from each other that it's, it's wow. a really cool relationship. Hmm. So he's a, if you, you have to see his work. So he's a graphic designer a graphic and designer, a muralist and a painter. A muralist, mm -hmm. an illustrator. Mm -hmm. And his line works just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. His colors is just unbelievable. So he's part of the culture of the building. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he brings these beautiful uh, colors and lines to mm -hmm. be part of the whole building. You know, it's like awesome attitude. Uh, energy. Mm -hmm. Really cool. And oh, it is. I, it's I around the building. His work story. is around the building. I yes. love seeing it every Yotron day. The Don. Yes. Tell us about the twins. Oh, wow. Okay, so the twins are graphic designers. Um, what are so they, they are Wilson and Elson Fortes. And um, they're dog. And they have a little, not so, well, he's little. He's just very wide. He is a muscular um, bull. Uh, what is it bull called? Terrier. A bull t terrier. Yeah. So he's a pit bull, but it's an American 
bully, I guess. So he is short and very wide. And his name is Goods. His, Goods. his name is Goods, and their their business is called Crazy Goods. So Wilson and Nelson are, are apparel designers and also graphic designers. So they have really cool pieces of clothing that they distress. For example, they'll distress. They put patches on. They design all kinds of sort of accoutrements to... Um, exist, existing clothes, and then they design clothes too. Um, but they have a very cool space um, in the back building that is underneath sort of a balcony, and they created it to look like a red line subway car, mm. which is really cool with a sign ca- a sign above it that says inbound to greatness. Uh. So <laughs> it's really cool, just like the ones on the red line inbound. But there says to greatness, mm. um, yeah. And they do a lot of they do a lot of other interesting things too. They do a lot of um, decoupage. They collect all kinds of newspaper articles, and they use them either. Media. Yeah, they use them in their clothes. That they they sort of I guess silkscreen or print them onto the clothes, depending on what the subject matter of the article is. Um, They have pieces of furniture that they decoupage. um, And actually one of the walls in their space is just a giant sort of decoupage um, fest. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Tell us about JPix. So JPix um, is a photographer um, who is from the neighborhood as well, too. Um, Bird Street. uh, Bird Street. uh, Started at Bird Street and Art programs, I guess, there. Um, I guess had a studio at Fairmont Innovation Lab? No, no, maybe not. Um, uh, JPix is just this amazing, sweet, interesting, talented, creative person. Um, uh, JPix takes pictures all around the city, does events um, uh, around Upland's Corner and all over in um, in Nubian Square. Um, uh, Also has started this weekly or monthly um, group meeting of, and I just learned about this from, there was an article in the Bay State Banner about JPix, and I didn't know any of this. I just knew JPix was this interesting, weird, nice person in the building um, that gets together and tries to capture parts of the neighborhood through images and and telling the neighborhood stories so they don't disappear um, uh, and does it through photographs but also she did a, a video interview with um, what's her name the direct the writer of that Linda the writer at the play with Com- Company One um, young oh, Cape Verdean woman the, we arranged oh, oh yeah, you guys no, arranged that's it. Us, yeah. us yeah oh, you guys that's did that. Francesca yeah. Francesca, Francesca yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah so that was something that <clears throat> JPix did did a sort of a tour through the neighborhood with Francesca who wrote Can I Touch It um, which was a play that Company One helped bring to life last summer that debuted at the Strand. Which is a neighborhood uh, yes. theater in the neighborhood. Yeah. Also, the twins weren't born in the neighborhood, but they grew up in the neighborhood. So they grew up in a bunch of different yeah. apartments around the neighborhood. So it's like people that are already, and these are both n- relatively newer tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also, Jim uh, um, uh, Stephenson, is that yes. his name? Um, uh, he took over. Uh, the the space that was um, uh, Joe. Joe Wheelwright's studio in the back, the big, huge space that someone else had partially built out after Joe uh, 
passed away and then Jim took it on as managing that space and then brought in a bunch of different people. So he brought in the twins, he brought in Ralph and Aaron, mm-hmm. he brought in a bunch of other folks. Sebastian. Sebastian. Um, yeah. uh, Gary. Um, creative the, small businesses mm-hmm. yeah, that creative. all kind of work together. So yeah. they can work together if they choose to. I mean, they make it very easy. Easy. It's kind of like, I think Jim called it um, a piazza, oh. no, <laughs> yeah. or something. Um, well, so there's like a common area yeah. in the middle, and then these little pods like all around the. Um, it was also like a clubhouse too, where everybody would uh, hang yeah, out yeah, and yeah, have, yeah. listen to music and have a good time. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, sometimes really good time. Uh, Let's talk about Jem and his work. So he is Fabrite. Fabrite, yeah. And he is an engineer and a designer, so he's really good with technology and software. Um, He has a CNC router in that space. He has a laser cutter, a very large one, with a five-foot bed, which I drool over. Mm -hmm. Um, But he creates all kinds of products uh, with this technology. Um, So he's constantly sort of pushing that envelope of what kind of cool things he can create. Mm. um, Through technology. With this technology, creative stuff. He Um, also teaches. Yes. A lot of youth. Yep. And he's... um, And he's young, too. Yeah, he's he's very young. He's not 30. Yeah. And he makes these beautiful little boxes with all these interesting uh, yep. opening mechanisms out yep. of his 3D uh, routers and yeah. lasers. And furniture. Very, and furniture. Yes, yeah. he's, got, yeah. he's getting larger scale, into yeah. larger scale stuff. But, um, you know, pretty much kind of an industrial designer in a way. Mm. Um, but, but really or using fabricator, all fabricator, designer of, and fabricator. Yeah, mm-hmm. all yeah. of his um, skill and... Um, talent at 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 you know using the software and finding the next thing that'll that'll make something faster or better so really interesting stuff and he's also involved with um an organization called digital ready which um helps a lot of young people get into the digital world um and he's on the board of that uh, organization franklin tell us about nora Nora, Nora, Nora is from Argentina. Uh, I get to know Nora through the same school that I was in Roxbury, uh, Boston Day and Infant Academy, also in a sculpture. I call her, she's a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> because she's a stone sculptor. <laughs> and one day I need to make her a, a t shirt that I say I'm a rock star. <laughs> and yeah, she brings the, the, the energy. Uh, uh, to the to the to the, to the group uh, and the voice, you know, and the perspective. Everybody that is part of the 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 meetings is like different perspective. If you look at the group, I mean, everybody's different, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and that's the beauty of what we're doing now, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And she's a great sculptor mm-hmm. and a teacher, and she's. It's unbelievable. And she's very connected to the community, and she's very. involved with Boston Sculptures Gallery, and she's um, had a lot of uh, prestigious grants and done murals, uh, permanent murals that are all over Northampton, etc. Um, how about Jillian? 
Jillian is another sculptor. Uh, she actually shares um, a space in the back. It's actually divided, but um, she's a metal sculptor who does pretty much stuff in stainless steel, um, which is an interesting Very material, large-scale large stuff. She does a lot of public sculpture works. She came through Joe and the Boston Sculptors Gallery. She was a sculptor there. Um, so he brought, it's interesting, the people that Joe brought in versus the people that Neil brought in versus the people that, that Boris brought in, which now the people that will bring in. Um, uh, each one has a sort of different character. Um, uh, but she does really amazing, beautiful, both intricate and rough um, sculptures. I mean, she's sitting there banging away at stainless steel and welding stainless steel, which is pretty serious shit. Um, uh, but they're also really intricate and interesting. Um, like she did one with blades of grass at mm. the beach um, recently and um, uh, a bunch of other ones to do with housing and other stuff. So uh, mm -hmm. just another very talented mm -hmm. artist um, at Humphreys. Okay, great. I'm really enjoying this conversation with all Me of you. Too. Thank you for your time. Well, I'm just going to say right away, we've enjoyed every minute you've been involved in this, Amy, and that's not just bullshit. You have pulled us together, motivated us, herded us in places we would have never gone <laughs> with your spirit, with your like imagination. You've been amazing. Like, My favorite part is when your... I smack you down. Yeah, just well, kidding. I'm, just not, kidding. I'm not going to say just I kidding. like that too no, much, just kidding. but uh, I really do. No, sorry. <laughs> Um, we have, well, I, Franklin should be here to have this part of the conversation, but we've made, um, what I would say are lifelong friendships. And, mm -hmm. um, if you could see Franklin when we're doing the coalition work, you, it would bring a tear to your eye for real. Mm -hmm. And Christina and I have gone from me and her partner, Mark being very close friends to now me and Christina being very close friends and, and colleagues. Now, yes. And now Mark <laughs> is like left. The third wheel. Me? And, you know, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah. Let's talk about how we built our tenants association and the uh, challenges and joys in between. Yeah. So the tenants association was a necessity in order to speak with one voice, as Kara had um, encouraged us to do. But in order to get help from other people, we all had to be on board. So during a pandemic, it was really hard to be able to, and, and actually impossible, to uh, all be at the studio at the same time. Um, so it took a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts, and, you know, knocking on some people's doors with masks. Um, but people weren't really as accessible as they would be in a strange way. Um, although the work for us, I think those of us on the steering committee became possible because of the pandemic, um, we weren't working like, uh, we would have been if there wasn't a pandemic. I know that, um, the reason why I was able to even take part in any of this was because I had no work and it became, um, kind of, became a it, it and it was a therapeutic way of getting through a situation where you don't have any control, um, about, you know, the world and, um, what's going on around you. It became, uh, something I could focus on and actually be positive about, um, it became a positive, as as Josh was saying, it was a, the light of his week mm. was meeting with 
everyone at 7.30 in the morning, 7.45 in the morning on Wednesdays. That's when the steering committee meets. But it became a place where you could focus and actually make a difference. And we said, even if we lose this, we have created um, relationships. We created relationships with um, community members outside of Humphrey Street, but within Humphrey Street. Mm -hmm. We got to know each other. We know everybody. And that, I couldn't have said that. So Mm. what did you think and uh, what was the reason for the Tenants Association and what what were you selling the tenants? First, I think it was actually uh, a bill that said we needed a Tenants Association at some point as well too, that that was really important. But then we, like, how do we organize that? What do we do? We got, um, we contacted Harry Smith, um, who used to work at DSNI, and I know through some of the uh, land land trust stuff in the city, uh, and just a really good guy. Um, and he agreed first just to meet with us to talk about it, um, and then we were able and to sort of talk about what a tenants association means, like how you do speak with one voice, how there's not different factions fighting each other, so that you're really together when you're when you're talking about what you're trying to do. Um, and eventually we hired him through a grant through the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture, if I'm remembering yes. all that correctly. Yep. Um, and he became our sort of advisor to how we organize ourselves and how we actually make this, instead of just a bunch of people getting together every once in a while, um, uh, a real tenants organization that represented the community that we were, we were trying to be part of. Or and basically, the question we posed to everyone at this one Zoom meeting we had one of the the earlier Zoom meetings. Do we uh, do we have everyone's uh, permission to speak on their behalf as a steering committee? Um, and what is it that we're speaking about? So, do we want to preserve our artist space? Um, that was basically a resounding yes. And can we can we? work on your behalf. And it was that simple. Do we, do we want to stay together as a community? Um, and can we work uh, through that? Well, the topic was that simple. Yes. Getting everyone <laughs> no. on board was not. Right. Well, I, I think once we got a hold of everyone, it, it was easy to get them on board. But Getting, uh, explaining the complexity of our situation to everyone mm. was hard. I mean, it's a complicated, it, it took a long time for me to wrap my brain around everything, ab- around who could possibly help us. What were the options of how we could preserve ourselves? What kind of help we needed? That was all complicated, and it was also a big unknown. I mean, Kara gave us money for um, Harry Smith to help us work through some of these issues. She also provided us money for a feasibility study, which was how would it be possible for us to um, preserve our space and keep it affordable? All of that stuff was uncharted territory for me to even understand, like, what is a feasibility study? Um, uh, Who who can take part in a feasibility study? Who are the people that are interested in providing a feasibility study? 
So, so at some point too, there was this shift, I think, between like, oh my God, what are we doing? Like, oh my God, this is crazy. Let's just sort of wave our hands around. And, and then starting to get feedback. Like then Bill uh, and those guys got back involved at some point and helped us with the feasibility study. Harry Smith yeah. got involved. Cara from the city got involved. Other people, and I think a large part of that was just because of the noise that we were making, that, that Amy, you as the publicist, was helping us organize, mm-hmm. that, that Christina did this amazing thing on the roof that was this graphic display of what we were doing, and it mm-hmm. said, art stays here, art works here, on the, this huge white letters on the roof mm-hmm. that a drone took a picture of. And like then there were articles in the paper through, uh, through um, and on BUR. And so it started to be not just, oh my God, another artist is losing their space, but people are actually there's 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 attention mm-hmm. and can we capitalize on that can we bring that together and what we way? actually did and we haven't talked about is that we went to jim cooper mm-hmm. the um ownership representative mm-hmm. and we said we're well, gonna try to preserve this because the property was on the market mm-hmm. core had backed out mm-hmm. and he was looking to sell yeah. mm-hmm. and so, he knew he couldn't get a loan and he knew he couldn't get a loan so we had a number of conversations, actually you did, with Jim Cooper, <laughs> and we said everything that we were doing, we would send him updates. We're meeting with the city, we're meeting with elected officials, we're meeting with New Atlantic, we're this, we're that, blah, 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 press articles, tenants association, and he, during that time, said he would give us six, six months, months, six months to come up with a proposal. Yep. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Halfway through that time, mm. a little, little like two thirds, two thirds through that time, we discovered that Jim that Cooper had sold the property. Had sold mm-hmm. the property. Someone signed. Um, he signed an offer with. He accepted an offer that was signed. Yes, he yeah. accepted an offer that was signed, um, which. Before the six months were up. Yeah, so that was a devastating blow, and we sort of thought, this is it. This is over. And, and this person we, wouldn't talk to us. We're unlike yeah. CORE. They were meeting with us. They were yeah, but showing, we tried. We, we reached tried. out. We multiple, every way we could conceivably try to reach out, we did. Um, um, he also served all of us, or not served, He he sent out... An estoppel to all of us, which I cannot remember what that what form, the, the form of an estoppel means. But yes, it's not quite a lease, mm. but it it asks for all of our information and how much we pay for rent. And we have to sign it. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was kind of my Lau's yes. feasibility study. Yeah. Right. right. To yeah. see right. what. Yeah. And he was very difficult to find out about. We looked up what other properties he owned, what he had been involved with. He would not communicate he with us. He would not communicate with us at all. So we found various articles. There was a project he was involved in in Chinatown. Malden. Where, and Malden. And there was another project in the in the neighborhood. But the one in Chinatown had been a work, um, a shared workspace that oh, had like somehow fallen apart. And there was a lawsuit. Oh, it was during the pandemic, too. It was right? during the they pandemic, still, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly what happened. But we couldn't. So we were getting like these weird little things from everywhere to try and figure out who this guy was what he wanted to do was this he just gonna tear it down not talk to us because Um, we were in the middle of a preservation journey a preservation campaign we were making headway mm -hmm. and all of a sudden 
the carpet was pulled out mm-hmm. and um, Jim Cooper would not talk to us. Mm-hmm. After that. And Myla would not talk to us. Yeah. And so we pivoted our campaign. Mm-hmm. We started an online petition mm-hmm. and the ask of supporters was that my Lao talk to the artists and that the community support the artists plan for preservation, which was for the artists to own it and to keep it as artist workspace in perpetuity. 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 <laughs> I feel like that should be like a schoolhouse rock <laughs> thing <laughs> about like, what is perpetuity? Mm-hmm. We reached out, we, re- we did tons of outreach in the neighborhood, in the arts sector, Oh, through everyone that we knew, social media, etc., we got 1,500 signatures on our online petition, which mm-hmm. was amazing. We got um, probably close to three dozen letters of support from different folks in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, Tenants Association, Boston Center for the Arts, different stakeholders in the arts and creative sector. We even, I don't know that I'm proud of this moment, but we used the technology of the Google form of the petition to automatically send letters to the four owners of our property, which were the widows of Joe and Neil, plus JJ and Peter Haynes, plus Jim Cooper, and my Lau, mm. mm-hmm. and John Kremens. Oh, yes, oh, the, the realtor. realtor. So we set up this kind of automatic letter that every time someone signed a petition, those people would get notified. And we were basically, all we were trying to do was get them to talk to us. Yeah. Right. But there was a lot of effort. And then we put the banners on the building. Mm -hmm. Art works here, art stays here. Yeah. Then we got drone photos taken of our rooftop. Art works here, art stays here. Mm -hmm. Then there were things in the globe. Then there were things in the dig. Then there were things... Mm Mm-hmm. There were also um, people that, I mean, besides all the people on the petition, all that reached out. So there were some contacts in Chinatown that knew um, Mylau who reached out to him directly. No response. There was uh, Liz Miranda called him multiple times to try and get some information on our behalf. On our behalf. Um, uh, So there were people. He was John Barrows reached out. John Barrows. Yeah. Um, So there were people that were trying to contact him. So we had this huge movement of volume of sound of coming at this guy um, from all different sorts of angles. Yeah. So let's talk about, we're, uh, there's going to be a part two of this conversation, but we'll, we'll just finish up here talking about the campaign really. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at first it was, everyone was on good terms. Jim Cooper, the owner had given us six months. We made a ton of headway. We got a lot of press articles we started getting uh, making relationships in the community. Mm-hmm. We got back, we were doing a feasibility study. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Bill Hardy from New Atlantic on board. We were like on a path to trying to get to ownership. And halfway through it, the owner sold it to someone else. Mm. We found out, and we had to immediately try to intervene on that and uh, stop that. No one would talk to us. Um, it was infuriating. It was scary. It was a gut punch. It was emotional. It was so many things. And uh, meanwhile, um, our property manager was touring Mr. Lau throughout our property, assessing it, looking at it. He wouldn't talk to people. Mm-hmm. It was um, 
crazy making. Mm-hmm. And that was that roller coaster too of like, oh my God, fear, this is going to be the end of it at the beginning to, oh, we're never going to get it. We'll give it a try. Oh, this is never going to work to getting hope and that building up. And then another big crest and another mm-hmm. huge fall. So it was this crazy emotional like thing of being really hopeful and happy and being with people and COVID and everything else right. to like, holy shit, we're screwed. Um, mm-hmm. But and we kept trying. Let's also say that um, because it was a privately owned property, mm. There was not really anything that the city or the government could do. You know, I mean, yes, they would try to make some calls to to connect people, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't pressure anyone. They couldn't force anyone. It really was exhausting trying to communicate what we were trying to do. And at different points, we were flabbergasted. So there were other people in the city that really wanted to help. The mayor wanted to help us. Sheila Dillon was an amazing, yes. who was the head of housing, uh, was an amazing source of information and helpful, but there wasn't anything <laughs> she could legally do as the head of this organization. But mm-hmm. So all these people were on our side. We had all this, and then all of a sudden, the wind was out of and our sails. And people at the BPDA. Yeah. We had conversations with them. Um, and, you know, they're a development company pretty much um and, but they um in particular there was uh ted ted, ted schwartzberg yeah. mm-hmm. who came to our events we were on another on another note here we were also during this time trying to have safe events it was during mm-hmm. covid but we would have events outside we had an exhibit we had an opening and a closing for our exhibit that that franklin actually donated his his space towards where our artwork in the community by commu- outside of Humphrey Street, From even all over artists and Boston. Um, had the opportunity to show their work. And um, we had a big outdoor party that um, people from the city came to. Mm. Ted Schwartzberg, um, Matthew Dickey, Matthew Dickey, Dickey, Boston Preservation Alliance. So, you know, we really tried to get at this problem we had from every angle possible. You contacted mm. Kathy? Yep, at um, uh, Historic, Boston. Historic Boston to see if we could landmark it. Like we were looking at, I mean, I, I, I'm involved in a lot of stuff in the neighborhood in terms of, I, mean, I live in uh, Highland Park in Roxbury. Um, and like, what tools do you have to stop development? So we were talking about landmarking mm-hmm. the building. I mean, we actually a, applied to landmark applied, it. Yeah. And because mm-hmm. it's a historically significant family that mm-hmm. ran this amazing cleaning business. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were looking at any way to try and intervene intervene, and put pressure on my loud. Listen, we're not going to just go away. So it was the wind out of our sails, but we had all this mm-hmm. support. People wanted us. At this point, we had built all this goodwill around the city. Mm-hmm. People wanted this to happen. People were invested in our success. Yeah, but there wasn't anything they could do. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was, was it going to be another one of those situations where it's a good thing that just disappears because there's not the... The tools, money, or whatever to, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So we'll stop here, mm-hmm. and when we come back, we'll talk about Diamond Windows. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co., 
And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.